Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. I'm Rachel Thomas. And I'm Marianne Freiberger. Artificial intelligence and machines that train themselves might sound like a plot from some science fiction movie, but these things are already part of our everyday lives. We were lucky enough to meet with some of the leading experts involved in artificial intelligence and machine learning at the Heidelberg Laureate Forum last year. And in this podcast, you'll hear about some of their fascinating research, from the basics of how these learning machines tick, to why time travelling and immortality might be easier to achieve than creating a machine that rivals human intelligence. And of course, we'll try to explain the maths behind some of these ideas in just one minute. Wow, time travel, teleportation and human-level artificial intelligence. This really does sound like science fiction. But before we get to those wild frontiers, let's start with some basics. What is artificial intelligence? Chris Budd is Professor of Applied Mathematics at the University of Bath and works in many fascinating areas that apply mathematical research to real-world problems. Chris is a long-standing friend of PLUS and he wrote as a fascinating introduction to machine learning based on one of his lectures as Gresham Professor of Geometry. When we spoke to him in Heidelberg, we started off by asking him, what is artificial intelligence? Well, artificial intelligence can mean really one of two things. So true artificial intelligence would be a machine which has consciousness and can react to almost any situation. And that's what you think of as science fiction, robots and stuff. Well, we're nowhere close to that and not sure we ever will be. Then there's the kind of weaker forms of artificial intelligence, which are where you a machine will do jobs which make it appear intelligent but are actually trained specifically to do something. So a very good example of that would be speech recognition. So you have these modern uh, things that sit on your desk and you say, you know, what's the weather? And they tell you what the weather is. Well, that that's sort of um, a weaker form of artificial intelligence and that's what's around us at the moment. One of the most significant recent developments in artificial intelligence is called machine learning. And this idea is to think of intelligence not as something that is taught to a machine in the sense of a traditional computer program written by a human, but rather it's something that a machine learns by itself so that it learns how to do complex tasks directly from the experience of doing them. Progress in machine learning is partly due to the engineering advances in computer speed, but the real nuts and bolts of machine learning is done with mathematics. So machine learning works by constructing a function so that if you give an input to that function, it gives you an output. And basically all a machine learning algorithm is doing is finding what that function is for a large number of inputs and a large number of outputs. So an example of a machine learning task might be a computer that takes some input, say a picture of an animal, and decides whether the animal in the picture is a cat or a dog. And what Chris is saying is that every part of that task is accomplished thanks to mathematics. The machine translates that picture into a mathematical object. So for example, it could take all the color values of the pixels and list them as a long list. So what you usually get is some vector in some very high dimensional vector space. Then the task of deciding if the picture is of a cat or a dog 
is done by applying a complicated mathematical function to the mathematical version of the picture. And the key idea of machine learning is that a human hasn't decided that mathematical cut or dog function. Instead, the machine learned what mathematical function was best suited to distinguishing between cats and dogs on its own. And it did this by looking at lots and lots of pictures of cats and dogs and using an optimization process to learn the mathematical function that was required. Practically, uh, the function is constructed by some sort of optimization process. So again, you've got a, all your inputs, you have a way of constructing a function with lots and lots of parameters. You, you then vary all those parameters so the output for that function is as close as possible to the desired output that, that comes from the learning process. And that is generally done by what we call a gradient descent algorithm, where you try to make your optimi you try to you have some sort of opt opt optimized um, function and you try to make that optimal value as small as possible by varying the parameters in a systematic sort of way. Chris mentioned something here called a gradient descent algorithm. We're going to talk about this in more detail later in the podcast, but this is an example of a mathematical technique that is commonly used in machine learning to train the machine to do a specific task. That is to discover the right parameters needed in your mathematical function. And it does that by tweaking those parameters over and over again as the learning machine works through lots and lots of training data. Here's Chris again describing what this process might look like for our simplified example of distinguishing between pictures of cats and dogs. So you have a load of pictures of cats and a load of pictures of dogs. And you extract, let us say, two coordinates to describe each picture. So it could be the, the length and the height. And then you try to find a straight line so that all the objects on one side of that straight line are cats, or most of them are cats, and most of them on the, the other side are dogs. And then you try to find that, the optimal set of parameters to describe that straight line. Chris's simplified example has involved extracting two features from pictures of cats and dogs. Now, in his explanation, he said that the features were the height and the length of the animal in the picture, but that's just an example. In reality, it's probably something a bit more complicated than that. Now, if you have extracted two features, each represented by a number, then what you have is a point in the plane whose coordinates are exactly those two numbers. So each picture is now associated to a point in the plane and the idea is that the machine will learn the description of the straight line using some optimization process that distinguishes between points representing pictures of cats and points representing pictures of dogs. Now, this is a simple example. Machine learning tasks usually require a far more complicated setup than this. Chris explains how machine learning uses something called neural networks to tackle more complex tasks. So there are a number of ways of doing machine learning and what we call computer architectures are basically ways of constructing this big function. So what a neural net is, is a particular type of architecture where you, you have a number of um, you kind of layers and at each layer you take a linear sum of the outputs from the previous layers and then you perform a non-linear function on that linear sum and then pass it on to the next set of layers. And this is supposed to kind of mimic the way that brain, the neurons in the brain all kind of link together. And by finding the correct linear combination of the inputs to, from one layer to the next, so you can build up quite complicated structures. And that's how a neural network works.
Okay, now it's great to finally get a grasp of what lies behind these technical words you often hear shouted in the blizzard of tech enthusiasm. And it's particularly nice to learn that this incredible technology is actually driven by mathematics. A neural net is just a type of complicated maths function, the parameters of which can be tweaked as the machine works through lots and lots of training data to settle on the best function for the task at hand. Now we asked Chris how successful this machine learning approach is. Frighteningly successful, and this is the both excitement and worry about the subject. So machine learning is doing extremely well. So Google, uh, sorry, the um, Go, which was designed by the Google team, um, the Go machine outperforms the top Go players. This is crazy, you know. And and what's what's particularly crazy is if you take uh, the chess playing machines. So there's been a whole generation of computer chess based machines based on sucking clean the knowledge of grandmasters and putting that into a algorithm and so on. And then they tried just machine learning by playing against itself for a load of times. And that beats the ones which use all the knowledge from the grandmasters. So from that point of view, very, very exciting, but also kind of worrying as well. So machines can teach themselves how to beat us at games like chess rather than us teaching them all our best moves. And these fantastically science fiction concepts of machines learning how to do things themselves is now part of our everyday life. You use it when you speak to your digital devices, when you click on a recommended product from an online store, or when you use language translation apps and websites on your phone. And not only that, machine learning is now also playing a role in medicine with discovering new drugs and in improving medical diagnoses, an area that Chris is working in himself. Um, I'm part of a team at the University of Bath looking at using machine learning to do diagnosis of um, x-rays of certain types of fracture. So the idea is that you have an x-ray of a fractured bone and then the machine learning gives you a diagnosis of what the fracture is based purely on the x-ray. So the exciting thing is that we can do this and we get a very high um, success rate. In fact, we get a higher success rate than doctors on the same set of x-rays. So that's all very exciting. But the ethical issue is this. Um, if you're a patient, do you want the diagnosis of your condition to be done by a computer or done by a doctor? And this is a very important ethical issue. It's not an issue that I should be deciding on. It's an eth- issue which a proper ethics committee of doctors and, and patients should be considering. Medical applications are a growing area of machine learning research. Another recent example is the work by Carola Bibian Schoenlib's AIX Covnet project at the University of Cambridge, where they're trying to develop an artificial intelligence tool that can accurately diagnose a patient with COVID-19 and to do this from clinical data and lab data along with chest x-rays and uh, CT scans. You can find out more about both Corolla and Chris's work on our website plus.maths.org searching for machine learning or artificial intelligence. As Chris says, it is important that researchers think about the ethical issues that might arise from the tasks we are asking these machines to perform. 
And the question is not just whether or not a machine can be doing these tasks reliably, but if we should even ask machines to be doing them at all. This leads us to the question that often arises in public discussions of artificial intelligence. Should we be afraid of robots taking our jobs? Should Chris be worried about being replaced? I have no concerns of being replaced as a mathematician. Uh, I think mathematics is such an amazingly creative subject, it's hard to replace me. People said that computers would replace mathematicians and when they were invented or came to be prominent in the 1950s and so on. All we've seen is that computers make mathematics even more exciting and even more useful and has led to many more opportunities. All technology, when it's introduced, is concerning. It, people can lose their jobs. But if you look at the Industrial Revolution, people lost their jobs, but then machines created far, far more jobs. And we, we are living in an age of machines, and there are more people with more jobs using those machines than ever before. Um, in my own lifetime, I've seen the rise of the internet and the huge technology and workforce and jobs that that has brought about. So, yes, there are concerns, but I have no real concerns for the future. Raj Reddy was awarded the Turing Award, which is one of the highest distinctions in computer science, in 1994 for his pioneering work in artificial intelligence and for demonstrating the practical importance and commercial impact of this area of research. In 1988, he proposed a list of six grand challenges in artificial intelligence that could change the world. Three of these challenges have already been solved, and each of those is a huge achievement in itself. IBM's chess-playing machine Deep Blue beat Boris Kasparov, the chess world champion, in 1996. Self-driving cars arrived with a successful DARPA Autonomous Vehicle Challenge in 2005, and Raj compares this landmark event with the Lindbergh's first flight over the Atlantic in the 1920s. And just a few months before we spoke to Raj in 2019, a team from the Allen Institute in the US developed a machine that could pass a high school science exam by understanding standard science textbooks. We asked Raj why he thought these three problems had been solved, while the others, which were a computer making a mathematical discovery, speech-to-speech -speech translation and self-replicating systems, why they hadn't been solved. One factor is that some turned out to be really hard. But really, the key is that researchers are motivated to work on these problems, and usually that's because either there's some sort of scientific motivation or there's some sort of economic motivation, which might be that they'll make lots of money, or that there's some sort of prize money attached to the innovation. At the Heidelberg Laureate Forum in 2019, Raj spoke about the unfinished agenda for these grand challenges in artificial intelligence. In his eyes, one of the great unsolved problems that remains from his original list is machine translation from any language to any other language, both in written text, but also as translating speech to speech. So that's the famous babelfish of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now we asked Raj why he thinks this would be such an important challenge to solve. These are essentially problems that are in the ether, you know, you know, things that almost seem doable. So for example, any language to any language, speech to speech translation has been done for 
certain languages like English and German and French and Chinese and Japanese and Korean. But there are another hundred other languages like all the languages of India which are spoken by between a hundred million to four hundred million people. None of them have that capability. And uh, India has this problem worse because in other countries everybody speaks the same language. So it's not that solving that problem of doing speech recognition in other languages, it's not that it can't be done, it's just that it hasn't been done. Yeah, basically there is a problem. It is clearly doable. Only thing it requires is a hundred million hours of, a uh, hundred million words of text and a hundred thousand hours of speech which hasn't been collected. And there are at least a hundred languages, all of whom are spoken by 30, 20, 30 million people each. It would be good to have all of them. And once we have that kind of a, any language to any language translation, speech to speech translation, there are a lot of things become enabled. For example, I can talk to you right away. You can be speaking in one language. And uh, we don't need any other thing, you know, just the world becomes smaller. And uh, the, there's no language barrier for communication. Although such an advance would have a huge impact on people's access to information and education, the most significant impact and the motivation that will probably ultimately lead to this challenge being solved may come from economics. I can talk to the doctor. For example, a lot of MOOC lectures are there that are important educational resource, but they're all in American English or something. Most people don't understand that accent even. And for that, it, if, if it would in real time translate it, that would make a major difference in you know, able people's ability to learn new things. And finally, uh, this is probably why I think it'll happen. E-commerce, it turns out half the population of the world uh, are either illiterate or semi-literate, namely they can read things but they don't understand what they're reading. And so half the population is in that state and uh, 20 million, uh, 2 billion people, uh, uh, 1 billion cannot read or read anything. Another 2 billion more are these semi-literate people. All of them have purchasing power. So. Um, I'm estimating there are three billion people that spend have a ten ten dollars a day, three billion dollars, thirty billion dollars a day, or times three hundred sixty-five days, ten trillion dollar market. talk in Heidelberg, Raj talked about three aspirations that actually aren't on his list of grand challenges. In one of my, in my tutoring of our talk, I talked about uh, three kind of long-term aspirations, teleportation, time travel, and immortality. These are all interesting goals, and I said, 
I can give you my version of it that may be solvable in a thousand years or something, but I didn't put them as my grandchildren. <laughs> Teleportation to me is already technically doable in a very narrow way. We, when we have a video conference, we are all you know, virtually in a meeting, uh, but we are actually physically, geographically distributed. But teleportation in, in uh, Star Trek means you are physically moving the atoms. You know, all that, all that here, we are only moving some bits, a voice or something. And time travel is again something I think it can be done by essentially capturing and archiving all events that are happening in the world, historical and non-historical. And so one of the things that I proposed was the idea that we could in fact create a technology whereby your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, could talk to you even if you're dead, they can kind of come and have a dialogue saying, Grandpa, Grandma, what did you do when you were seven years old or ten years old? How was the school? And then you'd come back and talk to them. The way that we did it was not because we knew exactly all the questions somebody could ask, but if you've captured the entire history of your life, then everything that happened there you know. And then it's just a question of identifying enough relevant components to be able to uh, give them some semblance of an answer, even though it may not be exactly the right, uh, to the point that they have the question they ask. These are still very much in the land of science fiction, but Raj suggested they might be solved within, say, a hundred years. And interestingly, he thought that they would be solved before we were able to create something like a human level of artificial intelligence. And this is because his version of time travel and immortality might one day be solved if we can conquer one of the tasks that is on his list of unfinished grand challenges, and that's developing summarization technology, something that he thinks might be solved in the near future. If you ask me, you listen to two one-hour lectures, tell me what they said. I can probably tell you maybe 20 words, okay? They talked about this area broadly, and I might have even understood more, but I can't repeat. That's usually the case if you go to anyone. So the way I said is, if that is the case, what we need is summarization technology. If I give you a book, or a talk, or a music, or a movie, or a, a baseball game, or a football game, can you summarize it? at different levels of granularity. Can you do, you know, in TVs they go from, you know, three hours to 30 seconds, but that's too, not very satisfactory. Maybe you want a three minutes baseball summary, or three, you know, ten minute summary. And depending on soccer, for example, goes on for, you know, it's a one hour game, but usually it's longer. And somehow you, you should be able to observe uh, this, all the important events of the game in half the time, one quarter of the time, one one-tenth of the time. And that technology you know, exists. We know roughly how to do it, and people have done it for some of the things. 
but not routinely available to everyone, to you and me. And it will be. And the same is true if I, if you get, I get many books. I just don't have the time to read 300, 400 page book. I just want to know what the big idea is, what are the one or two important things. Such summarization technology would be an immediate help in what Raj calls the information glut that we all live in. And perhaps in the future, as Raj described before, we could apply the same summarization technology to capture the events in our lives and allow our descendants to talk to virtual versions of ourselves, enabling a kind of time travel. And that just leaves the question of immortality. Yeah, basically, in my version of immortality, I redefine immortality by saying, if I'm me, like me, was around in a thousand years, you would think somehow I am immortal, right? How do you do that? I said, we understand cloning, so freeze my you know, embryos or whatever. <laughs> a thousand years from now, wake them up and, and create a baby, and I'll, it'll grow out to be exactly like me. And the only thing is it may not have all the knowledge that I have, then that's the technology solution that we have to kind of say. And, and so if I had that, and a thousand years from now I came back, I can essentially go through my whole life of hundred years in one day, all the key events. Then I can go back and say, no, I want to see more of when I was dating this girl okay, or something. <laughs> And now we come to the part in the podcast where we try to explain some maths in just one minute. Earlier on, Chris Budd mentioned something called the gradient descent algorithm, which is a way of tuning the parameters of the mathematical function that a machine learns when it is being trained to do a specific task. Rachel, can you please try and explain what a gradient descent algorithm is in just one minute? Right. As Chris explained before, the idea in machine learning is that you train a neural network using some sort of optimization function. Now, an optimization function usually means you're minimizing some value as you move over a mathematical surface. And in this case, the mathematical surface equates to the space of possible configurations of the weights given to the connections between the neurons in your neural network. If you think of the neural network as having a control panel with knobs on it for the weights for the connections between all the neurons, then you're just exploring all the possible settings of the neural net's knobs. Now, this all sounds quite theoretical, but there's a nice analogy of finding your way off a mountain in the mist, which I first read on Wikipedia. You're stuck on the mountain and the mist has descended. You can't see the path, let alone where it leads. So how on earth are you going to find your way down to the safety of the village at the bottom of the mountain? You can't see into the distance. So instead, you just have to work locally. You can sort of explore the ground very close to where you're standing and figure out which direction is downhill and head that way. Now, that's just how the gradient descent algorithm works where instead of feeling which way is downhill, sort of using your feet and your body, you instead find the downhill direction mathematically using calculus. Now, thinking of using this algorithm on the mountainside, we're working our way over a two-dimensional surface. 
You can easily imagine this algorithm going wrong and ending up in some local minimum where every direction is uphill and you're stuck in a hole, a kind of pit of despair halfway down the mountain and not in the safety of the village at the bottom. On a two-dimensional mountainside, you've got a limited number of directions to choose from, north, south, east, west, or sort of combinations of these. But in higher dimensional spaces, there's lots more directions to try. And thankfully, it turns out that you can show mathematically that you'd have to be really, really unlucky to end up in a place that is a local minimum in every possible direction. Even if many of the directions look like you're in a hole in a sort of local minima, you can be almost certain that at least one of the many possible directions will lead you out downhill. Now this means you're at what's called a saddle point rather than in a hole and you can carry on moving downhill towards the safety at the bottom. The gradient descent algorithm has a really good chance of leading you to the right parameters for your neural network when you're training it to do a specific task. Now, this is actually the happy solution to something called the curse of dimensionality that another Turing Award winner, Joshua Bengio, told us about at the Heidelberg Laureate Forum. Bengio is one of the pioneers of something called deep learning, where neural networks are incredibly complex and have lots of layers, leading to very high dimensional vector spaces to explore to find the best mathematical function to perform your machine learning task. It had been thought that it would be impossible to optimise things for these bigger networks and the more complicated mathematical functions involved, and that instead they'd all get always get stuck in some sort of suboptimal solution. So they'd always get stuck in one of these local minima or pits of despair on the side of the mountain, rather than reaching the best possible solution. But in fact, Bengio and colleagues were able to mathematically prove that you are much more likely to find yourself at a saddle point rather than a local minima when you're working in these very high dimensional vector spaces. And in fact, machine learning performance actually gets better with bigger neural networks. Wow, that's great. Next time I'm lost on a mountainside, I'm going to be inspired by calculus and the gradient descent algorithm to find my way back home. And this takes us to the end of this PLUS podcast. If you've enjoyed our podcast, be sure to check out our website at plus.maths.org for more exciting mathematical stories. The music in this podcast is from Olli Freak and the track is called Experimental 5. You can find this music at soundcloud.com slash Thanks for listening and bye bye for now. <laughs>